0: into town uh, last evening, yesterday evening, after 10 days of uh, camping in the wilderness. I was being a little dramatic there. It was tent camping, though, and so uh, last night's sleep in our own beds felt, uh, felt very good. So it's, uh, it's good to be back, though. I, I know every time I, I miss a Sunday, it always seems uh, like something's just not right in your week, not having fellowship with your church and being a part of, of the body here at Liberty Hills. We missed everybody, and we're uh, glad to be back. So uh, I have eagerly been looking forward to John chapter number 17. I don't know if you caught on to that at all. Over the uh, the past few months, uh, we have looked forward to this this passage of Scripture. Uh, it is a special passage of Scripture, uh, specifically to myself. I know It has been very instrumental in my own walk with the Lord, in my view of the local body, in my view of the church, in my view of Christian liberty, in my view of unity within the body of Christ on so many different levels. John chapter number 17 has been used by the Spirit to shape me in my view of Christ, my view of the Trinity, and ultimately how I live that out in the context of the body of Christ. And so... I could not be more excited about this passage. Uh, We've got a couple weeks to go through John 17. And this first week here this morning, um, I want us to focus more um, at a a level of of themes and purposes of John chapter number 17. And then next week, we're going to get into more of maybe a formal outline of the exposition of the text. But more, my goal here would be to lay a foundation of the heart of Christ, and the purpose of this prayer back to the Father. Okay, so I want to make sure you're tracking me as we're going through this passage of Scripture. So we're not going to have formal three points in a poem this, this morning, but we are going to hone in on this text and the heart and the purpose behind it as Christ is, is praying these words back to the Father. So we find ourselves here in John chapter number 17. Again, we're on the officially on the tail end of The upper room discourse, as we have called it, chapters 13 through 17, is this time where Christ has gathered the disciples and there's been this dedicated time of of teaching and instruction uh, to the disciples before he, what, ultimately will depart from them, right? And he's unloaded, if you will, on them, right? There's been some heavy teachings that Christ has gone through over the last few chapters in this Upper Room Discourse, right? But the inevitable is about to happen. Christ will go to the cross. He will go to the grave. He will let it raise again, and he ultimately will ascend up into heaven and leave his disciples with a mission to accomplish. And so this inevitable separation is continuing to loom in the minds, and the hearts of the disciples, this physical separation. So he's taken this time to speak directly to their hearts. He's spoken even into their emotions and ultimately to their humanity as a whole. And he has said, what? Don't let your hearts be, what? Troubled. Remember, just as Dave Welch preached on last week in chapter 16, verse 33, Christ said, in me, you may have, what? Peace. Peace. Do you remember this? He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. That's a promise. There's going to be trouble in this world, but Christ is calling them to peace. He's calling their hearts to be settled and not troubled about these circumstances that are to come. He says, but take heart. I, Christ, has overcome the world. And so I don't know about you, but there's, there's a great subtleness about that statement that Christ says, I have overcome the world. In this world, there is Satan, right? There's the flesh, there is sin, and he has overcome all of it through the power of the resurrection. And that same power that he had to raise himself from the dead and defeat sin, death, and hell is the same power that we have at our fingertips through the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit that has been spoken of over the last couple chapters as well. So he has done what? He's encouraged them. He's given them hope. He's trying to anchor their their fears and the weakness of their mind around some very great truths of Christ. Don't forget, he has also given them this hope of this promised helper, the paraclete, the counselor, the comforter. And what seemed at that moment to be the most horrifying thought to the disciples, physical separation from them, will soon be the catalyst that will turn the world upside down for Christ. This Holy Spirit will do a great work. But don't forget his imminent betrayal and his impending sacrifice. This will all culminate with his incredible resurrection, which will all point back to the Father as the one who has sought after a chosen people who has rebelled against his will for their lives. This is why Christ has come. To seek and to save that which is lost. To give his life a ransom for many. So if you remember with me, God's plan has always been to be in a covenant relationship with his people. It's what mankind was created for. To be in relationship with their creator. God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of all things. God the Father has desired to be in relationship with his people. But we know Adam and Eve in the garden sinned against God's commandment. And because of that sin, that relationship was what? It was broken. We know Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have what? Sinned. So Jesus Christ has not just come for popularity or status, or to be a great teacher, or to go down in history as the only man who has done these great miracles, signs, and wonders, but he has come on a mission to save a people, to redeem that which has been broken through his sacrifice, to be made right in the eyes of God so that we can fellowship once again with God the Father. And so that relationship, because of sin, had been eternally broken because of their sin in the garden, because of my sin. Thus, we as mankind have been presented with an eternal problem. That eternal problem is something that every single man, woman, and child has to come to grips with at some point in their life. That I am in active rebellion against God. I have sinned. I have broken God's commandments. I have chosen sin over a relationship with the Savior, And so we have been presented with this eternal problem, our sin, a problem which we cannot fix, we cannot solve, we cannot escape. We need help. We need a Savior. And that's what John has been establishing all through this gospel account of Christ. Let's remember Ephesians 2. But God And that this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's in The the crux of these verses, it's in the gospel message of both the Old Testament and the New Testament that we have this high priestly prayer of Christ, John chapter number 17. Friends, we know that these titles in our Bibles, they're not inspired. These were uh, entered in by man's designation to group the scriptures and paragraphs to help us understand the meaning and the thrust and the purpose And so in your Bible, you probably have a title above John chapter 17 that says what? The High Priestly Prayer. Why is it called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ? It's been identified and described over the years as just that. I believe it's in this text that we see one of the most beautiful facets of both the deity and the humanity of Christ right here in John chapter 17. So it's been described as this high priestly prayer of Christ. Why? Because that's how Jesus functions on our behalf. Dave, you uh, read my mind this morning by going to Hebrews chapter number seven. I'll be going to do a couple other passages in Hebrews to help us understand the relationship that we have with Christ as our great high priest. This is something that should change how we think and how we relate to Christ and ultimately how we relate to others. Christ is our great high priest. We see Christ interceding on behalf of the disciples right here in this passage. But not just for the disciples. He looks forward to the pages of time and to all mankind and he intercedes on behalf of all those who will believe in Christ. Friends, I don't know about you, but that's amazing that Christ has the wherewithal in his human form, but yet still God, the God man, to not just pray for his disciples that are here in front of him, but also to think about all those who will also be disciples and followers of him. Friends, that's you. Friends, that's me. Christ is thinking of you in John chapter number 17. That's amazing. The love, the care, the concern that Christ has for his followers to make intercession for them while he is here on earth. To have this outward expression back to the father of care and concern for his people. This is a beautiful passage. It's oozing with a relational touch that Christ is calling out that he desires to be in relationship with his people. That's you. That's me. Christ Making intercession to the Father for me. And by God's grace, that's my children. By God's grace, that's my extended family members. By God's grace, that's even my co-workers and my neighbors. By God's grace, it's everyone that will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. It's everyone that we have the opportunity to plant and water the gospel seed. Christ is thinking of them in John chapter number 17. That's beautiful. Beautiful. This is our Christ. This is our Savior. This is the ransom that has been given on our behalf. And Christ is sharing this beautiful time with the Father, and He's praying for us. And do you not feel this deep sense as Christ, as our high priest, that we have an advocate? We have legal representation in our corner that says, That sin is paid for. It is no longer to be held to your account. He is their high priest. He is our high priest. And he's seated, as they've said, at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us for all eternity. Friends, isn't it a beautiful reminder as we look at John 17 to remember that Christ has met our greatest need. That eternal problem of sin has been met through the blood of Jesus. He has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, and because of His work on the cross, we are declared righteous. It is, what? Finished. There is no more sacrifice that is needed. Christ is enough for us and for our problem of sin. Hebrews 4 14 through 16, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without, what, sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. This is the ministry of the great high priest. This is his role. This is his relationship with his covenant people. We have an advocate. We have Christ, the great high priest, making intercession on our behalf. Friends, this is the high priestly prayer of Christ. And it is my prayer And hope that as we work through this text that we will see Christ for who he is. And that his will and desire for his people in this text will come to full fruition in among our body here at Liberty Hills Bible Church. I'm telling you friends, if we get John 17 and we live it out, our church is going to be changed. Our community will be changed. You as an individual will be changed as a father, as a mother, as an individual covenant member here at Liberty Hills Bible Church, as a husband, as a wife, as a friend, as a co-laborer. You will be changed if we understand John 17 and Christ as our high priest. And if we get Christ's purpose for the church that he is praying back to the Father this morning. So Jesus' prayer here in John 17, let's read our text. And I'm going to read, if you would not mind humoring me, the whole chapter. Um, I want us to get the holistic view. I want us to get the themes and the purpose and, and really the crux of, of this passage. So follow with me as I read. This is Christ praying back to the Father, John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven For I have given them your words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, and they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22 The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see your glory. And you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is John 17. So here we are. Christ in this prayer Verses 1 through 26, he will literally pull on all the threads of instruction and teaching of not only this upper room discourse, but even looking further back as far as chapter 11. He pulls in so many different themes and and focus points to hinge the disciples' minds and hearts. We see so much communicated out from Christ back to the Father here. But more important than all those teachings and instructions, we see a concern on the heart. Of Jesus. And we see a purpose in the words that Christ communicates back to the Father. Oh, did you pick up on it as we read through John 17? What do you think the concern or purpose of John is here in John chapter number 17? Anybody got it? It's okay to talk. What do you think it is? We see a word used often throughout these 26 verses, Starts with a G. Glorify, yeah. You guys see it there? You see, all through John chapter number 17, Jesus desires, he longs for, and pursues what? The glory of God. Jesus' major concern in this text, in this prayer back to the Father, is that the Father should be glorified through carrying out of his eternal plan. So what is this eternal plan of the Father that we see in John chapter number 17? We've traced this plan throughout the pages of John's Gospel, and we've looked forward many times already to the stated purpose of John's account in chapter 20, verse 31. But these are written, why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So the eternal plan of the Father is this to call out a people who recognize and respond to Jesus as Savior and Lord and thus securing eternal life. Let me say that one more time. The eternal purpose of God the Father before the foundation of the world is this, to call out a people who would recognize and respond to Jesus as Savior and Lord and thus secure eternal life and relationship with God the Father. So friends, this is huge in this passage. The glory of God. Jesus is concerned not only with His ability to pursue the glory of God, but also for His immediate disciples and extended also to us and all those who will believe in the days to come. This is the major theme of the High Priestly Prayer of Christ. The glory of the Father is at stake. And Christ thinks very highly of the glory of the Father. He places the highest premium on his ability and his disciples' ability and the future disciples' ability to bring glory back to the Father. This is a big deal. The glory of the Father. That was a word that we use often in our Christian circles, right? We live for the glory of God. It rolls right off the tongue. It's in our doctrinal statement multiple times online. We we talk about, you know, Father, be glorified. Uh, we sing songs about it. There's books written about it. I'm sure there's conferences out there about the, the glory of God. And so it's it just almost becomes this commonplace thing for us to think about the glory of the Father. It's part of just our lingo and our vernacular within our, our C- Christian circles. But what does it really mean? to be concerned about, and to pursue the glory of the Father. Before we dive into that, let's be reminded, though, that it's in pursuing the glory of God that we find the only true purpose of our existence and being in Christ completely embodies this reality. Jesus is so committed and focused on the glory of God. And we see it all over, chapter after chapter. And we see it very explicitly here in John chapter number 17. So let's look at John 17. Where does this theme of the glory of God come up in this passage? Look with me in verse number 1. It says this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. We see it in verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. We see it in verse number 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. I am glorified in them. Verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. Verse number 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. As we look back at this predominant theme of the glory of God in the Gospel of John, We see that it is first introduced all the way back in chapter number one. If you'll remember Jeff Campa introducing and kicking off our Gospel of John series back in chapter number one, we see it this this theme of the glory of God appear 14 verses into the gospel. He says this, And the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen His, what? His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We see this glory theme explicitly stated recently back just a few chapters in chapter number 12 where Jesus shares in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. He goes on in verse 27, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Verse number 30, Jesus answered in chapter 12, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. The glory of God in the Gospel of John. Again, this... Do these verses, does this topic, does this theme of the glory of God just go in one ear and out the other? Has it become just commonplace in your vernacular and the words that you use in your Christian lingo? Think about it on a daily basis. How does the glory of God, how often does the glory of God enter into our mind? How often, if ever, does the glory of God arrest our attention? How often does the living and light of the glory of God change how we respond and react in a tense moment? How often does the glory of God cause us to choose love instead of hate? To choose self-control over a moment of lust? to choose unity over needless dissension, to choose to cover a wrong in love over being quickly and easily offended, to choose to lean into relationship over being isolated, to choose corporate agreement over my individual preferences. You see, friends, the glory of God if properly understood should touch every nook and cranny of our heart and mind. It should change how we live, how we relate, and how we react to every moment of the day. The glory of God changes everything. You see, it's no longer about me. It's no longer about what I think. It's no longer about my desires, my purposes, my goals, my ambitions. The glory of God changes everything. That's why Jesus said, if anyone comes after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. The glory of God It's a process of emptying everything that I am and taking on the mind of Christ. Eternal deference to others. Looking on the needs of others. Philippians chapter number 2. Looking for opportunities to serve rather than to be served. To look for opportunities to lay down the sword as opposed to take up the sword. This is what it looks like to live for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 Verse number 31 is no doubt a well-known verse, but I'm going to tack on verse 32 and 33. So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Matthew 5, verse number 16 is a very familiar verse. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Friends, on the basis of this major theme of the glory of God in chapter number 17, Christ will go on to petition the Father for a number of very specific things. Protection for the disciples, unity for all those who believe, evangelistic mission while remaining in the world. These petitions to the Father can only be properly understood and lived out only when viewed through the proper lens of the glory of God. That's, that's why I'm not diving into the formal exposition and the outline, because I feel like we need to understand this foundation, the grandeur, the bigness, the importance of the glory of God before we dive into what Christ is actually asking from the Lord. Because it's all in light of the Father being glorified in and through Christ, in and through the disciples, and in and through all who will believe in the days to come. Why? Why can all these other themes not be understood unless we get the glory of God right? Because in of myself, I believe I know best. In and of myself, I choose my way every single time. Does that sound like unity that Christ is praying for in John chapter number 17? No, it doesn't. My convenience, my desires... My preferences, my timing, my purposes, my pride, my status, my way, my rightness, if that's a word, my agenda, and my glory are all fighting against the glory of God. Do you feel that tug in your flesh? Do you you see that battle raging around you inside the church and outside the church? Christ knew this battle. He knew the propensity of our flesh to be glory robbers. To just want to be right for the sake of being right. Who cares if you're right? The glory of God is at stake. And this is what Christ is is praying for. He knew our weaknesses. He knew the struggles. He knew the church splits. He knew the dissension. He knew the bitterness that would be a root that would spring up and defile many. He knew the leaven that would defile the whole lump. He knew all of this and he is praying for the church. He's praying for you and for me in very specific ways in this passage. But ultimately, that we would get the glory of God and we would love it and we would pursue it. And we would intentionally go after it. So, What did Christ do knowing all of this as God? What was his response? What was the plan of action that he put in place to ensure that we would stay on track? Christ chose prayer. Think about it. Christ is God. Out of all the things that he could have done, he's done signs, miracles, and wonders. He has power over nature. He has power over Uh, physical sickness. He has power over disease. He has power over uh, evil forces in this world. We've seen him do sign, miracle, and wonder over and over and over again. Christ, knowing all that he knew as God of the coming struggles of the church and the challenges that we would face, Christ chose to pray to the Father. You think Christ understands the power of prayer? You think Christ understands what can happen through the ministry of a prayer? Out of all the things that Christ could have done, he, He chose to pray to the Father. He gave this outward demonstration of prayer that is soaked in love and care and concern for His disciples and all of those disciples that will believe. And as disciples and followers of Christ, should we not also have this affection for the body of Christ? Shouldn't we also be passionately concerned about one another? As Christ is here in John chapter number 17, friends, do we consider Romans chapter number 12? An extended passage of scripture that I'll read here. Paul says in Romans 12, verse number nine, let love be Genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with what brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful and zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in what? Prayer. Prayer. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Friends, I think Romans 12 embodies this perfectly one, this Trinitarian unity that Christ is praying for, the church here in John chapter number 17. I think it looks a lot like Romans chapter number 12. Do we consider Hebrews 10, 23-25, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful and let us consider how to, what? Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Friends, we could go to a myriad of other one-anothering passages to get the heart of what it looks like to live out John chapter number 17. But friends, I'm afraid too often we lose sight of the will and the glory of God for our individual lives and in the broader corporate body of Christ. I'm afraid too often we are far more concerned about our hobby horses, our isms, our convenience. And as a result, the world looks on and says, the Jesus you say you follow I don't want to be dramatic, but the world says he's a joke because of how we as Christians are living in this world. Let that sink in. That's what Christ says we have at stake here. How you live, how you relate, and how you love one another validates the existence of Christ to our generation. We hold that reality, that truth in our generation, in the palm of our hands, by how we get the heart and the mind of John chapter number 17 and the glory of God. That's on us. That's the conclusion that the world will draw every single time unless we as individuals and as the gathered church get serious about the glory of God. For when we do, they will look on and observe something supernatural, something not of this world, a miracle of sorts, a group of humble, committed, loving, united people serving each other sacrificially all for the glory of God. I pray that we would see that come to fruition at Liberty Hills Bible Church. When they see that, They can only say Jesus is no joke. He is who he said he is, the Christ, the Son of God. Friends, I wonder in your own life, how is the glory of God being lived out? Are things creeping up the scale of priority and the glory of God falling further down? a lot of good things that we should be passionate about. We read passages that told us to hold fast to the confession. We don't waver on doctrine. We don't make any exceptions for what we believe and why we believe it. There's many things that the church and the name of unity have done that have hurt the name and the cause of Christ. Friends, let's get this. Unity is not conformity. Let us never trade conformity for unity. Unity is around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And just like Paul said, I do all for the glory of God. I eat, I drink, every word, every action, every reaction, every relationship that I have inside the church, outside the church, it's all lived in light of the glory of God. So, friends, it's on the basis and the foundation of understanding this this major theme and concern of Christ for the glory of the Father, in John 17, that we'll continue to work our way through next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity that you've given us to look into your word. I pray that you would help us as the body of Christ, your church, to understand the importance of living out our lives for your glory, not our own. Father, let us even confess this morning as the church, where we have failed to make the main thing the main thing. Let us, as individuals, confess that we have held on to our preferences stronger than we should have, and it's been at the expense of the greater unity of the body of Christ. Father, I pray that our church would be known in our community as a church that is living in unity around the gospel of Christ. Everything else, Father, can fall along the wayside. The songs we sing, they matter. And we need to be careful, but let us not a style or a certain song become more important than the unity of the body of Christ. Let an outward expression or a standard of Christian living that we may even hold dear, let that not uh, keep us from fellowshipping with another brother or sister in Christ. Father, you desire us to be one just as the Father and you are one. And so let us live for that reality. Let us understand that just a little bit more even this morning. As we look into this passage again next week, I pray that we would bathe ourselves in this text and we would understand more clearly what it looks like to be the church that you have called us to be. So Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would change us to be more like your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in your precious name I pray. Amen.